0: Welcome to the Royal College of Physicians of Edinburgh's Case Notes podcast. Over the next few months, we're going to delve into the different physician branches or specialties. Just to start off with, what is a physician? Most people know what a GP is and what a surgeon is, but not everyone knows exactly what a physician does. Well, the formal description is specialists in internal medicine, so diseases and complaints that happen inside your body. And even if that sounds unfamiliar, you've almost certainly heard of a lot of the areas that this covers, like cardiology, diabetes, allergies, palliative care, infectious disease and neurology. These are all branches of medicine or specialties that physicians are responsible for. In each coming episode of Case Notes, we will pick one of these specialties and delve into its history, looking at its development over hundreds of years and some of the interesting stories and cases from the past. We'll also talk to a current physician working in that area to find out what it is like to be working as a specialist physician in the 21st century. In this episode of our Case Notes podcast, we are delving into diabetes. We'll be looking at the history and then talking to Professor Mark Strachan, a consultant physician. We don't have a historical case study today. Instead, we're going to explore a case study with Mark from his practice. We're going to touch on the inventions and discoveries relating to diabetes, but we're also going to look at some of the weird and unusual medical treatments which have been adopted through the centuries. Because diabetes is an ancient disease recognised since antiquity, but where effective treatment only came about in the 20th century, doctors throughout the century made many fruitless attempts to try and treat this seemingly untreatable disease. But let's start from the beginning. Diabetes is one of the world's oldest known diseases. The phrase, the passing of too much urine, appears in an Egyptian manuscript written around 1550 BC. The Greek physician Aratheus, writing in the first century AD, gave the first complete clinical description. He noted the excessive amount of urine which passed through the kidneys, and used the word diabetes, derived from the Greek meaning siphon or to pass through, to describe the condition. But these discoveries brought physicians no closer to knowing what to do about diabetes. Early Greek doctors recommended trying exercise, particularly horseback riding, as this was believed to reduce urination. They also recommended warm clothing, cold bathing and massages. In the 1600s, the English physician and anatomist Thomas Willis rediscovered what Eastern physicians had observed a thousand years earlier, that in some forms of what he called the pissing evil, the urine of patients was, as Willis put it, wonderfully sweet. He used mellitus, The Latin word for honey, to distinguish between this condition and other causes of excessive urination. Tasting urine was, then, a key method physicians adopted to diagnose diabetes. But what to do about it? Narcotics, including opium, were recommended. Tobacco smoking was also often prescribed. In one domestic recipe book from our college's historic collections, kept by a Mary Sawyer, who unfortunately we don't know much about, a treatment for diabetes is given. It says, quote, Only drink plenty of wine, leaving off malt drinks, and drink spa waters, which has done great cures. In the early 1700s, Johann Brunner, a Swiss anatomist, came close to discovering pancreatic diabetes. He removed the pancreas and dogs, and noted that they displayed extreme thirst and polyuria. These are regarded as the first experiments on the internal secretion of the pancreas. Another great advance took place in the 1770s, when Matthew Dobson, from Yorkshire, carried out further experiments. By evaporating the urine of a diabetic patient, Dobson was the first to prove the presence of sugar in urine. He also made the crucial observation of the excess of sugar in the blood, and demonstrated that diabetes is a systemic disorder rather than, as had previously been thought, a primary disease of the kidneys but the treatments which were being used on patients remain much the same as they had been centuries earlier. One published recipe collection, titled The Poor Man's Physician, authored by Church Minister John Moncrief and published in Falkirk, is a compilation of the recipes of numerous physicians and folk healers. This book contains a recipe to treat what Moncrief called diabetes or extraordinary pissing. It recommends taking an emetic, also known as a vomit, or in Scotland as a puke, alongside ass's milk, In which hot stones had been immersed. Another recipe from Moncrief for so called extraordinary pissing contained the brains and stones of a hare burnt and drunk, a snail burnt with its shell, hare's dung, powder of burnt mice, the hoofs of a hog burnt, and roasted hazelnuts. The English physician Thomas Cawley working in the 1780s, was the first to suggest a relationship between the pancreas and diabetes. He noted that the pancreas of a patient who had died of diabetes showed stones and signs of tissue damage. The significance of this vital clue was not to be appreciated for another hundred years. Later in the 1700s, the Scottish physician John Rollo began trialling different diets on diabetes patients. He settled on a high fat and protein and low sugar diet, the first significant dietary approach to the treatment of diabetes. Diet now became a major focus for physicians attempting to treat diabetes and many different forms of diet were tried, from fasting to an egg-only diet, no fruits or vegetables, to the oat cure, potato therapy and the starvation diet. In the 1890s, Oscar Minkowski a German physician and physiologist, produced experimental diabetes by removing the pancreas of a dog. This proof of the role of the pancreas in diabetes was of major importance in understanding the disease. The next step was closer to our college's home turf in Edinburgh, where Edward Schaefer was professor of physiology at the University of Edinburgh. He theorised that the pancreas must secrete a substance which governed carbohydrate metabolism. For this suspected internal secretion of the pancreas, Schaeffer suggested the name Insulin. At the University of Toronto, Frederick Banting, assisted by a second-year medical student, Charles Best, finally made the discovery which revolutionised the treatment of diabetes mellitus. In 1922, only eight months after beginning their experiments, they announced the isolation of Insulin from the pancreas of a dog in 1923 banting was awarded the nobel prize this was only the beginning of the development of diabetes treatment but physicians now had an understanding of the disease to build on an understanding that was sorely missing in the times of treatment by wine dung and horseback riding So um, we have with us today, Professor Mark Strachan. So I was wondering, Mark, you know, before we really get into things, could you just tell us a little bit about yourself and and where you work? Yeah.
1: Uh, Hello, Daisy. And hello, everybody. So, yeah, I'm uh, a consultant in diabetes and endocrinology at the Western General Hospital in Edinburgh. I've been a consultant now for uh, approaching 20 years. And I've got a wide range of uh, interests across the the, um, endocrine spectrum, but a lot of uh, the work I do in endocrinology is around endocrine cancers, thyroid cancer, and neuroendocrine cancer.
0: Thank you very much. So I guess just to start with the absolute basics, what is diabetes and endocrinology? Could you just sort of summarize for us what it actually means? Yeah, so well, very... In its broadest sense,
1: uh, diabetes and endocrinology is the, uh, is the study of hormones or it's the, the clinical discipline uh, that involves um, uh, disorders related to hormone action or deficiency. Diabetes obviously is something that most people will be familiar with, um, an elevation of, of blood sugar uh, in the body, which can cause a variety of uh, long-term complications. Endocrine disorders um, tends to uh, involve um, abnormalities in the thyroid gland, the pituitary gland, the adrenals and the testes and the ovaries. So we we really deal with a wide range of um, uh, disorders across many, many different uh, systems. I always like to say to people, we are not a mono-organ speciality. We are a whole body specialty. And in fact, uh, a, very, a very, very, very wise um, older clinician uh, that I uh, was taught by, by a medical student always used to say um, that there are only three disorders in quotes that appear in every single chapter of Davidson's textbook of medicine. And he said, those three conditions are alcohol, alcohol, amyloid, and diabetes. So we endocrinology and diabetes is a true multi-system speciality.
0: Thank you. So as, as you say, you know your specialty is one that people are, are pretty aware of. Diabetes is something that, that people are, are have in their consciousness. So are there any particular stereotypes that you think people have in their heads or misconceptions around what your speciality is, what, what it is that you do?
1: Yeah, I think that would be very fair. So there's so yeah, there's a very, um, I think, funny uh, consultant rheumatologist now retired in Glasgow called John Larkin. And in 2005, he wrote a book called Cynical Acumen in which he gave various sort of uh, humorous anecdotes and vignettes about bedside medical teaching. But he also gave little sort of character uh, uh, summaries about uh, individuals in different specialities. So for example, he said, you know, if you're, if you're talking in a room full of cardiologists, uh, you'll realize very quickly that an abundance of neurons is not a prerequisite for being successful in this specialty so that was cardiology so for for so his, the opening sentence of his chapter on diabetes and endocrinologists was endocrinologists is for losers so i would like to ha- offer a defense for endocrinologists uh, against uh, against john larkin so I think one of the, one of the misconceptions uh, about diabetes endocrinology is that it's a bit of a staid and stuffy speciality. Sometimes maybe a bit boring, and that's because we don't have um, a, a, a sort of a big practical procedure that we do. We don't do life saving. Coronary angiograms and angioplasties, like the cardiologists do, we don't remove foreign bodies or mucus plugs from the from the lungs, like chest physicians, and we don't dialyze uh, and save the lives of of people uh, with with kidney failure, like nephrologists. Um, and I think again, one of the misconceptions came about was that, particularly with diabetes, was you know in years gone by it could be quite depressing because there was a limited armamentarium of therapeutics. The therapeutics weren't very good. And as a consequence, people got very advanced life-changing complications of diabetes. But of course, like all things in medicine, that's changed. and, And, you know, now diabetes is on the brink of a technological revolution in terms of the management of patients. Um, And it's incredibly exciting and endocrinology, the the, the pure endocrinology, although it's not a speciality where we tend to get, you know, big um, sort of big ticket um, innovations and, and changes. It is a very, it's a very satisfying specialty. It's quite intellectual. You're dealing with numbers all the time. You're dealing with extremely rare disease a lot of the time. And so intellectually, it's a very, very satisfying specialty to do. So I think you don't need to be a a complete loser to become a diabetologist and an endocrinologist.
0: You've mounted a very good defense there, thank you. And so I was just thinking, there you know, there may be people listening to this podcast who are, you know, at school and thinking about studying medicine, or who are at university and thinking about which specialty they pick. So, if people are considering a career in your specialty, is there anything that you would advise? Any particular skills that they need, or anything they can do to to progress their careers?
1: Well, I always say to um, to our medical students and, and trainees that you you need to you need to have a passion and you need to love your specialty now i i have been very blessed in my career as a diabetologist and endocrinologist i have genuinely loved every minute of it i love being a diabetologist and a, an endocrinologist the things that i love about it are that certainly well within both disciplines you get to know your patients very very well we the, of course one of the sadnesses about diabetes and endocrinology is that there are not many people that we can cure of their underlying endocrine or diabetes disorder you know we are managing their diabetes and their and their endocrine disorders but what that means is that they come to our clinics over very many years and you get to know them very well. And that for me is a joy. It's like seeing old friends coming in um, on a a regular basis. I think to be a good diabetologist and endocrinologist, you have to be a people person because it is all about the interaction in the uh, the clinic room um, and in diabetes in particular, it is about motivating people to be as healthy in their lifestyle as they they possibly can. Um, I think an interest in problem solving and and numbers is a good thing to to have. Um, And if like me, you're not very good when it comes to practical procedures, then diabetes endocrinology again is definitely um, the the speciality for you. But, But actually, you know, ultimately, it's the thing that really captures it for me. It, it's obviously the individual people that you meet, but it is just the variety, you know. You know, across, you know between in a, one afternoon doing an endocrine clinic, I can be seeing somebody with thyroid cancer, somebody who's got a pituitary tumor and who doesn't make pituitary hormones. I can see a man who is uh, deficient in testosterone. I can see a woman with polycystic ovarian syndrome. I can see um, a young adult with uh, Graves thyrotoxicosis. It's incredible variety, just in the sure source, the, the, the space of, a, uh, of, of an afternoon. So, yeah, it's, it's a fantastic specialty. I would encourage everyone to think about it.
0: Thank you very much. So you mentioned again, as you sort of mentioned a few times before, how important sort of numbers and data is to your work, which means that um, this might be a slightly impossible or tricky question to answer, but something that I'm very interested in is, you know, the, the theoretical museum of medicine. You know, if you have an object from every medical specialty that sort of connects to, you know, therapeutics to diagnosis, you know, what would the object for your specialty be in this museum of medicine?
1: Well, I
0: think the object would have to be
1: um, an, an old insulin syringe. The metal syringe that you had to boil in a pan to sterilize, that had a needle that you didn't just use once, That you used again and again and again that probably initially you had to file yourself to sharpen it that probably later on you sent off to be filed and sharpened and i would have that in my in my museum and right next to it i would put the state-of-the-art insulin pump a continuous glucose monitor as a as a contrast about where we've been and where we're, we're going to now.
0: That's perfect thank you very much. Um, so one thing we haven't talked about much or we have talked a bit about you but you have been fairly modest in terms of your own achievements so I was just wondering if you could talk a little bit more about the type 2 diabetes study that you have been sort of a key part of and, and the work that you've been doing recently.
1: Yeah well um, the, the type 2 diabetes the Edinburgh type 2 diabetes study um, started um, about 15 years ago and it came on the background so when I was uh, brian freer's research fellow brian brian freer was very interested in hypoglycemia um, and i mo- all the studies that i the research that i did was around looking at the symptoms and the physiology of hypoglycemia but brian was very good he always got his um his pound of flesh from his research fellows And when you first started a research post, of course, you had to get ethical approval and you had to, you know, it took time to get the research projects up and running. So he always got you to write a review on something. And Brian came into my office about three weeks after I had started as a research fellow, put a big pile of uh, research papers on my desk. I said, "Mark, I've this is a pile of research papers about cognitive impairment in type 2 diabetes. And I've been collecting them over the years. I'd like you to write a review on this topic. And so I went through all those papers, I did a huge literature search at the time. I managed to get papers I got one paper in, that was written in Japanese. There was another paper uh, that was um, uh, written in Spanish. I got these papers translated. And I wrote, with Brian's uh, help and, and with, with other colleagues in Deary in psychology, a review on type 2 diabetes and cognitive impairment. And that was the first really ever meaningful review on that topic. And it's been cited over the years, countless hundreds of times. It's by far and away the most read thing that I've ever uh, ever written. It was the first thing I ever wrote and it was the most read thing I've ever wrote. Um, And that stimulated in me an interest in the effects of type two diabetes on the brain and in particular uh, on cognitive function and on the risk of dementia. We now know that dementia is probably two to three times more common in people with type two diabetes than it is in the, in the general population. And we set up the Edinburgh type two diabetes uh, study really to look at risk factors for cognitive impairment and dementia in, uh, in people with type two diabetes. Now, I could never have set this study up myself. And in fact, I was uh, incredibly fortunate in, and incredibly fortunate in many ways that my wife, Professor Jackie Price is an epidemiologist in public health uh, in the University of Edinburgh, and Jackie's got an interest in large-scale epidemiological studies and in uh, cardiovascular disease. So we set about basically as a team in um, uh, getting funding for the Edinburgh Type 2 Diabetes uh, Study and basically in keeping it going. I have to say, Jackie did probably a much greater share of the work than, than I did. But in essence, what we did was we recruited just over a thousand people with type two diabetes um, and we brought them into research clinics where we pretty much measured everything uh, in them and we assessed their cognitive function. And then we brought them back after five years and then we brought them back after 10 years. And we've produced now, well, well over 100 publications looking at risk factors for Uh, cognitive impairment in in diabetes. But actually, what was brilliant about that study was because we had such rich data that we had collected on patients, we were able to look at the epidemiology of lots of other um, aspects of diabetes. So um, I remember about a year into the study, uh, Professor Peter Hayes, who's Professor of um, Hepatology in Edinburgh came and uh, gave a talk um, to, the, to the diabetes teams of Lothian. And he was talking about liver disease in type 2 diabetes. Now, that was something I'd never really paid any attention to at all, and I didn't think it was, was very important. And in fact, Peter's um, uh, basic thesis in the talk that he gave to us was, you diabetologists are a bunch of shysters because you're ignoring liver disease uh, in your patients with diabetes he was completely right. And so I thought, as I was just listening to Peter, gosh, we could look at this in the Edinburgh type 2 diabetes study, because we've got all the clinical data, we just need to bring people back and do another, do a liver scan on them. Um, and we can then follow up and see who develops cirrhosis or advanced liver disease in the future. So again, that opened up a whole new avenue of, uh, of research. So, so yes, it's been very enjoyable, very productive. Um, I feel we've made a significant contribution in raising the importance of cognitive impairment and dementia in, uh, in people with type 2 diabetes to the, to the fore. And we've advanced the, um, uh, the, uh, the, the, the research on, on liver disease in type 2 diabetes.
0: Thank you very much. That was, that was really fascinating. Um, so the the my sort of last question really, as we kind of get towards the end, is the inevitable question that perhaps nobody wants to be asked. But it's February twenty twenty two, and we can't really avoid the subject of coronavirus. So I'm I'm interested um, in how the pandemic has impacted on your practice personally, but also on your specialty more generally.
1: Well, the, the, the obvious impact was that we had to, I am said that diabetes and endocrinology is, is an outpatient specialty. Well, we had to stop seeing outpatients. Now, ordinarily, that would have been cataclysmic uh, for us. But actually, we were very, very fortunate because the year before coronavirus struck 2019. NHS Lothian uh, approved a rollout of um, Freestyle Libre continuous glucose monitors to patients with type 1 diabetes um, and to people with type 2 diabetes on multiple injections of insulin. Um, And those continuous glucose monitors whilst improving significantly the information available to people with type 1 diabetes themselves. Also, we were able to link them in to an IT platform that um, we had access to in our clinics. So hitherto, before continuous glucose monitoring, we were reliant on people coming to the clinic and us taking a blood sample to measure their HbA1c level as a measure of glucose control, and uh, getting a download from their home blood glucose meters. From 2019, we had rolled out, at really significant pace, um, this continuous glucose monitoring system that meant that actually, remotely, I could just bring up any one of my patients and see exactly what their blood glucose data were. And actually, it gave an estimated HbA1c as part of that. So. What that meant, actually, was, we, although we were doing telephone consultations, actually, they were still very, very productive consultations because you had access to their, to their data. Now, we would have been completely snookered if we hadn't had, had this. We would have just been almost meaningless consultations. So we were we were very, very fortunate in, in that regard. And of course, over the, the subsequent two years, we've gradually increased the proportion of people that we're now seeing back face to face, but we're still nowhere near the levels that we were. So I would say the majority of our consultations are still by telephone, but actually, I would argue they're still very meaningful and productive consultations. We're just doing it in a different way. And um, obviously, one of the benefits, if you can consider it that way, of coronavirus is that it has turbocharged digital developments in uh, in healthcare in, in general that hitherto would have taken many years and, and many um, hours of beating your head against a brick wall to, to get progress with. We've been able to make very substantial progress with it. Um, it did mean as well person a personal level I was redeployed down uh, onto downstream general medical wards I hadn't worked in a downstream general medical ward for for many years and uh, I went back onto a general medical ward which I have to say I thoroughly enjoyed um, but you know it's been hard and um, uh, you know it's changed very much the way that we we work as a, as a specialty but one of the great things about working in the NHS, Daisy, is that actually the individuals who work in the NHS collectively are very resilient and they're very, very resourceful. And it's amazing how you this Leviathan organization actually is able to adapt and change and, and, and rise to the challenge. And I firmly believe that the NHS has done that. Um, and, we've played our very small part in that.
0: Thank you. And I think all of this is sort of doing a good job of dispelling the stereotype or the myth of the the boring specialty, I think. And so thank you so much for joining us today, Mark. It's been really fascinating.
1: No, not at all, Daisy. I've thoroughly enjoyed it. Thank you very much.
0: In our case study today, Mark talks about Sophie, the difficulties of diagnosis, and how one individual can change your whole mindset. About four
1: years ago, three, four years ago, um, we found out that a patient of ours called Sophie, um, who I had been looking after for many, many years with type one diabetes, we found out that she didn't have type 1 diabetes. She had a rare genetic form of, of diabetes. And this was life transforming for Sophie because she was able to come off of insulin, go on to tablet treatment. So she, Sophie had been on in insulin for nearly 25 years and came off treatment. But Sophie would be the first to say that over the years, her blood sugar control had been not ideal because you know, type one diabetes is hard. It's very hard to get good glycemic control. And as a consequence, Sophie had quite advanced eye complications of diabetes. And as a diabetes team, we we were very upset, actually. We were very happy for Sophie. But we were actually really quite upset as a team on many levels. We were upset that you know, we never thought that Sophie might have a genetic form of diabetes. Sophie just always had type 1 diabetes. That that was it. And we were upset that, that, you know, if we'd made the diagnosis earlier, Sophie might not have developed the advanced complications of diabetes that she has now. And we were upset because we knew that if this has happened with Sophie, then there must be other people coming to our clinic with a label of type 1 diabetes, who also didn't have type 1 diabetes that might have other forms of diabetes that could be managed differently. So, we set about um, um, starting to measure a, 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 a special blood protein called C peptide, which basically helps you work out if somebody's type 1 diabetes might have been misclassified. And, and we found w- when we applied this to our whole clinic, that we had misclassified 7% of our patients with type 1 diabetes had, had the wrong diagnosis. Now, in not everyone did that misclassification have a major impact. Not everybody was able to come off of insulin. But there were other people we did get off of insulin, including Sandy, who had been diagnosed with type 1 diabetes in 1963 and who'd been on insulin for 50 years before actually we realized that he also had a genetic form of diabetes that could be managed with tablets. And so that was that whole program came about because of Sophie. Just one person, one individual patient had a transformative effect on our approach in our diabetes clinic. And actually the consequence of that piece of work that we did here at the Western Journal in Edinburgh is that the Scottish government accepted that actually this was an important thing to be measuring C-peptide in people with type 1 diabetes. And so they agreed to launch a national programme for C-peptide testing. And that was launched last uh, November, November, 2021. And so Scotland became the first country in the world to actually have a full national program of C-peptide testing with the necessary add-on tests that um, are, are, are required in people who have detectable C-peptide. And it just, you know, say Sheila Reith inspired me to become a, a diabetologist but patients also inspire you to do innovative things that actually can be really beneficial in the uh, in the long term.
0: Thank you for listening to this Case Notes podcast. If you'd like to find out more about the work we do, you can visit our website at rcpe.ac.uk forward slash heritage. You can also find us on Twitter at RCPEHeritage and we have a just giving page, RCPE Heritage, linked to on our website if you'd like to support our work and help to fund future podcasts. Thank you.